But tonight, uh, we're going to be stepping into yet another dialogue uh, that the Apostle Paul has with the Corinthians, okay? Uh, but unlike most dialogues that we've dropped into, uh, the culture gap between us and the Corinthians in this passage seems to be the most pronounced. In fact, uh, many, many commentators have written that more than any other passage in this letter, or maybe even the New Testament, the passage that we're looking at tonight presents severe problems, in the words of these, uh, of these commentators, for the interpreter and for the preacher. And you'll know just why in a second. And so before we look at this passage, I just want to give just three brief caveats, okay? The first, uh, as we look at this passage, is that Scripture uh, confronts us, okay? Scripture confronts us. The, the first caveat is that as Christians who follow and pledge their lives uh, to the dead and risen Son of God, we believe that the Word of God is breathed out by Him. Uh, it is infallible, it's inerrant, it's profitable for training, teaching, and correction, as 2 Timothy chapter 3 writes. And one of the reasons why we go passage by passage, whether on Fridays or even on Sunday mornings, is because, this, because of this foundational conviction that what we have in our hands truly is the Word of God, including hard passages like ours, and not just the easier passages, passages like, you know, doing all things for the glory of God. And this reminds us that even though Scripture is the Word of God, we recognize that there are parts of it that are hard, hard for us to submit to, hard for us to understand, hard for us to live by. And this makes sense. Um, if Scripture is this cohesive story about Jesus and how we live into that story, then Scripture will also expose all the ways in which we fail, our lives fail to conform to that story. If every week you come to youth group or Sunday morning thinking to yourself that you agree with everything that is said either from the pulpit or from Scripture itself, then you're probably not listening, listening carefully. It's because as we listen and hear the Word of God regularly, the more it will actually stand over us. And the more that Scripture stands over us, the more uncomfortable we feel by it. That's what it means when Scripture is said to teach, reproof, and correct. How, how Scripture is a, um, a two-edged sword piercing to the marrow and hearts of the saints. Scripture is meant to make us feel uncomfortable when it offers its diagnosis and its correction on the human condition. Okay, so the second caveat is that Scripture screeps, uh, speaks into rather than conforms to our culture. Okay, scripture speaks into rather than conforms to our culture. And so if scripture is meant to confront and challenge us, it will also speak into our culture as well. And so one thing to keep in mind as we look at tonight's passage is that we're not the original audience of scripture. Okay, let's just hope that we just understand that and we know that. Scripture was written to people who lived in a world and a culture and a time that was vastly different from our own, which makes its interpretation hard, especially for passages like this one. But because we aren't Scripture's original audience, it means that we're, again, dropping into a culture that is foreign to us. This is especially true of our passage. There are symbols and customs, like, like head coverings, that are foreign to us. And the Apostle Paul will talk about men and women in a way that is foreign to our modern culture, and that our modern culture will think is archaic and backwards thinking. And so a temptation that we all face as 21st century interpreters of, interpreters of Scripture, whether you're a Christian or not, is to read into Scripture what we think or want it to mean. And that's a big no-no in interpretation, okay? But Scripture, on the other hand, does not conform to our culture and our understanding of freedom, success, or relationships. But rather, Scripture challenges and speaks into it, okay? In this passage, the Apostle Paul does not endorse cultural customs in Corinth, but rather through scripture, he is actually challenging their cultural customs, seeking to transform how men and women are to relate with one another in the church and in the world. And so rather than calling the Corinthians to conform to the cultural customs of the world, Paul is actually calling them out of it 
and he calls them to a new way of being human in Jesus the Messiah for the life of the world, okay? And so before we start looking at the text, I'm going to have you guys just strip all of your preconceived notions about what the Apostle Paul is saying, okay? Just, I know it's impossible to, but just try as much as you can to just listen to what Scripture has to say, okay? Third, the third caveat is that Scripture shapes how we love, not just how we live, okay? Scripture shapes how we love, not just how we live. A final caveat is that the goal of scripture isn't to fill your mind with a ton of application and practical how-tos, okay? That's important, but if we think that that's the goal of scripture, then we've misunderstood, misunderstood what scripture is. Scripture isn't a Wikipedia to answer, to answer all of life's questions. Scripture isn't a manual or a roadmap to life, contrary to what you might have heard about scripture. Scripture is a, as I mentioned before, is a dynamic story that is meant to reshape and reorient our entire lives and imaginations around Jesus. If the church isn't teaching you how to read or understand this dynamic story, then the science, peer pressure, and school stuff that you want the Bible to be talking about isn't really going to matter. There's a difference between learning wisdom and learning a bunch of facts. So before we become doers of the word, we need to be lovers and hearers of the word. And in order to do that, we have to, to listen to scripture aright. And I'm convinced that when we become, when we, we can understand and love Jesus, scripture and his stories, then we can understand and learn to think about things like science, peer pressure, school stuff, academics, whatever it is. For this reason, tonight's message isn't really a sermon, okay? Um, I'm going to do something that I, I don't do very often or actually really ever. Um, I'm going to be walking through the text. And I know that for, for most of us, we're not used to that because we just kind of like stop here and then talk about some application. I'll bring up some story, but I'm just going to walk through the text, okay? Um, and for that reason, I'm going to have to require that you guys actually really, really pay attention. And I know that will be hard for you guys too, because you guys are coming from a very long week of school and you're already listening to your teachers for 45, 50 minutes. And so I know that coming here, it's going to be difficult, but I really don't want you guys to see this as a lecture because I'm going to provide some application at the end. But it's important that before we get to the application, that you guys actually understand what the Apostle Paul is saying. Okay, we can't get to the application without understanding what he's saying. So I'm going to have to request that you guys, I'm going to have to plead with you guys that you guys just pay attention and just follow along with the Apostle Paul's logic, okay? It's a little bit complex, and it's even hard for me to understand, and so I'm just going to request your patience as we, we, as we sit through this, okay? Does that make sense? Okay. Um, uh, the Apostle Peter in 2 Peter, the funny thing uh, is that uh, he, he's going a little meta in Scripture, but he, said, he once wrote that there are some things in Paul's letters that are hard to understand. Okay, so if an, if, if an apostle has a difficult time reading another person, another apostle's letters, then um, I think we're okay. Um, but just because the text is hard to understand doesn't mean that the text can't apply to us. Uh, this passage isn't any more culturally conditioned than even last week's passage. So after walking through the text, I'm going to give some implications, as I mentioned, at the very end. And so having said all this, I think we can begin. Okay, so if you, have, if you guys have your Bibles, please turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 11. Verses 2 to 16, and this is what um, the Word of God says. Um, hear the Word of God in verse 2. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the tra traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. 
For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. There it is. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. And all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long, head, long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. If you are visiting for the first time or even your second time, this might just be your second time and only time uh, being here. Um, but at least it's not me doing the offending. It's, it's scripture. And I just have to mention also that if you don't understand this passage, it has less to do with scripture than it actually has to do with me. I, it's very possible that I just have not explained it very well. And that's totally my fault. That's not the fault of scripture. Uh, but this is, as I mentioned before, is an incredibly complex, if not possibly offensive passage in scripture to our modern ears, uh, especially in light of our cultural moment. Um, you know, there's, a, there's, a, there's an episode of, of Parks and Rec. Have you guys ever watched Parks and Rec before? Some of you guys have? Okay, the rest of you guys have to get on the show because it's hilarious. Uh, but in its fifth season, um, uh, city councilor Leslie Nope, uh, one of the main ca characters in the show, is upset at the lack of gender diversity, diversity at work. And we find out that as a woman, Leslie is not allowed to reserve conference rooms for meetings without the consent and signature of her husband or her father. And so she brings it up to her boss, um, Chris, and he allows her to set up a meeting called the Equal Gender Employment Commission. Uh, and, and she wants this meeting to happen to balance out the lack of ladies who work in city government. And when Leslie and Chris attend the meeting, when they show up, so they're not the, they're not the first to show up to this meeting, but when they show up, not one woman is invited to participate in the meeting on gender equality employment. And in shock, Chris says, I am part of the problem. And I, you know, I bring this episode up because it's, it's kind of a funny way of exposing what's happening in our culture, in our, in our culture today. Uh, and one of the many questions that I think arises out of this evening's text is, how are Christians to think and act in light of all the abuses, inconsistencies, and dismissiveness that we see being exposed in toxic masculinity? And on the other hand, how are Christians to think and act in light of the modern feminism movement? And if being created in the image of God means that men and women are created equal before God and have equal dignity and worth, what does this equality actually mean? And so as we approach our text, it even sounds like the Apostle Paul is reinforcing and perpetuating certain unhelpful cultural stereotypes, it seems. And so what is Paul even saying in these 15 verses or so? And what I hope in the remainder of our time is that we come to the text again with humility and that we submit to the text's authority. We do not stand over the text. The, sta the, the text stands over us. And the temptation that some of us have might have is how does a first century Jew know anything about how to live as a Christian today? Another temptation for others of us is that we might see this passage as yet another affirmation of the kind of domineering patriarchy and unhelpful masculinity that we see in our culture today. And I'm relieved to tell you that Paul actually knows a lot on how to live as a countercultural Christian today. And over the course of our passage, he will both free us and also challenge us to live out who we are in Jesus the Messiah. And so the text, again, will, will challenge us and help us live as fully man and fully woman remade in the image of the Messiah in our modern world. And, and so let's, let's be honest. Also, let's be honest. Um, when are you going to be hearing a message like this on a Sunday? You're not. 
Um, and so let's saddle up. Uh, the key idea for um, this text is that a people centered on the Messiah reflect the Messiah in how they show honor to one another and in how they show dependence on one another. Okay, so the first point is that reflecting the Messiah means that we honor one another. And again, as I mentioned before, we're just going to walk through the text, okay? I'm, I'm going to leave most of the application to the very end, so please stick with me, okay? Take a look at verse 2. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. Now one thing to point out before we move on to the next few verses is Paul's, again, genuine praise and commendation of the Corinthians. Okay, even though the church in Corinth acted and reflected the values of the city and required a heavy spanking from the Apostle Paul, at the same time, there is still here much to affirm in the lives of the Corinthian Christians. One commentator writes that Paul always stands warmly alongside those who admit to perplexity and seek advice. It is when they claim no need for advice at all or act on their own with complacency that he becomes sharp, sharply polemical. So even in this verse, Paul is modeling for us a way of loving those with whom we historically have difficulty loving, okay? Paul wasn't some naive guy, but even in the midst of the bad of what he saw, Paul still, still looked for the good and pursued their good. Okay, now take a look at verse 3. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a woman is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Now much ink has been spilt over the word head, and the reason why is because the word head can have multiple meanings depending on the context of how the word is used. For example, um, having the runs is different than saying, I'm going on a run, okay? And depending on the context, those are two completely different things depending on the context. The word head is the same way, okay? Most scholar, scholars who commented on this word have boiled it down to three main def definitions of head, okay? The first is it can mean authority, okay? Like the head honcho. The second meaning is that it can mean sometimes source, okay? The source of life that the head of this person is, uh, for example, like, Anyway, that's, I'll, I'll just leave it for, the, for a little bit. But third, the third definition is that the head can also mean having priority. Head, head, head meaning uh, preeminence. And I'm inclined to actually take the third definition, prominence or preeminence or priority. And here's why. Uh, in Colossians chapter 1, verse 18, Paul writes that Jesus is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So in other words, Jesus being the, the head of the church, the body of the church, uh, means that he is to be preeminent in all things. So to be, to be the head of the church means that Jesus has preeminence and priority in everything. And for Jesus to be preeminent mean that, means that he must be first in our lives. He must have ultimate priority. But now, the interesting thing is that now Paul is actually applying that same word to husbands and men by saying that husbands are the head of their wives. Now what kind of, for some of us, think, we might be thinking, what kind of misogyny is this? But if we know anything about Jesus' life, how did he understand his own preeminence, his own priority, his own prominence? Prominence. How did he use his preeminence? Well, in Philippians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul writes that he, though he was in the form of God, Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he instead emptied himself, taking the form of his servant, being born in the likeness of men. And what we see in Jesus' headship over the church, over creation, is that he has used his priority, his headship, and his preeminence not to be served, but to serve. And this is what Paul is saying when husband, husbands are the heads of their wives. Husbands have preeminence. Husbands are the heads of their wives, just as Jesus is the head of man, so that they can serve and love them. 
Okay, this is what Jesus, or what the Apostle Paul is transforming. To Paul, preeminence and love were synonyms. But the interesting thing is that that was not so in Greco-Roman culture and society. To love your, lo- to love your wife, I think like for, for some of us, like we have like great relationships with our parents where our, 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 our dads uh, and our moms love each other. It's a great relationship, great marriage. But to love your, life, to, to love your wife in Greco-Roman culture was a completely foreign idea. Something that we've never maybe even thought of before. If you were a Corinthian husband, the only thing that you owed your wife was food and children. That was it. You do not owe your wife love or respect at all. And so to the Corinthian Christians, this was deeply countercultural. Because the act of nurturing, serving, even beautifying and loving were not only activities that husbands were not only required to do, but they were also uniquely associated with women in Corinthian society. Does it make sense? You guys follow along? This is the idea of headship. This is what headship is supposed to look like. If all you guys, by the grace of God, ever become husbands, really by the grace of God, you are the head of your wife, okay? But this idea of headship, this idea of headship is completely transformed to mean that your headship now exists for the life and benefit of your wife, to lay down your life for her, to sacrifice your own autonomy, your own interests, your own desires, to give your life to her, to act like Jesus, to encourage her just as Jesus did. Does that sound sexist to you? I hope not. And I take take a look now at verses four to six. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head covered, uncovered, dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut her hair off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. Now, one thing to keep in mind is that the Apostle Paul is using the most familiar relationships of life, like husbands and wives, to transform how men and women are to relate with one another as they gather together to worship. Okay, so from this passage all the way to the end of chapter 14, the Apostle Paul is going to be talking about what it looks like to worship together as the church. He's not just specifically talking about what goes on in the home and in the family. He's actually talking about how we, as men and women, relate with one another in the church and in the world. Okay, and one question that I think some of you might be wondering is, is is Paul talking about behavior of husbands and wives exclusively or men and women in general? And I'm inclined to think that actually he's actually referring to men and women in general. That's not just exclusive to husbands and wives, as we'll see in just a second. And so what we have to keep in mind is that Paul is given instructions on what proper worship looks like as the church gathers, as men and women gather together to worship Jesus. Now, notice what he doesn't say here, okay? The problem isn't that men and women were praying and prophesying. Did you guys catch that? Okay, he didn't say, hey, stop praying and prophesying, guys. We'll talk more about prophecy in chapter 12 as we talk about spiritual gifts. But for now, what we need to know is that prophecy simply refers to the public proclamation of God's words to God's people. Okay, prophecy is simply the the public proclamation of God's words to God's people. That was how the Old Testament prophets communicated scripture and the words of God through prophecy. And it's the same in the New Testament. Why would it change? And whether you agree with this definition or not, it's it's undisputed that being a prophet or prophetess was a public ministry, okay? You didn't do it privately. God's message has an audience of more than just yourself. And what the Apostle Paul isn't saying is that men and women need to stop praying and prophesying in public worship. You guys following along? In other words, in Corinthians, Paul was not condemning the public ministry of men or women, but he was rather regulating it. 
Okay, so he's not condemning what they were doing, but just regulating it. How? Notice how the Apostle Paul uses the words dishonor and disgraceful. Men whose, whose heads are covered dishonor their head, who is Jesus, and women whose heads are uncovered dishonor their heads, who are men. Now, what does it mean to have your head covered? It meant either having your hair down or a hooded robe that covered your head. And it was actually usually, usually both. Um, and what we need to understand is that why this mattered at all is because the cultural sign during Corinth to symbolize that you were a man and that you were a woman was through head coverings. Okay, so that was the cultural symbol that demarcated and set you apart from either being a man or a woman. Does it make sense? It was through this idea of head coverings. And so the idea is that clothing and hairstyles even were symbols that communicated something about who you were as male and female. And so the cultural cues that signaled whether you were a man or a woman was through how you dressed, through what you wore, through how you let your hair down or didn't let your, your hair down. So why was it a big deal that men were to have their hairs uncovered and women were to have their heads covered? Well, a covered head for a guy during the first century meant that you embraced a homosexual lifestyle, okay? While an uncovered head for a woman during the first century meant that you were sexually available and also could possibly have meant that you wanted to usurp the preeminence of men, okay? Covered hair for a, a woman in public symbolized modesty, honor, status, and protection for a woman. And an uncovered head in public disgraced a woman and put her at risk. And for married women, the only person that you could show your head to, uncovered, was to your husband. And I think for us, this is a concept that's, that's very hard for us to understand and even accept because cultural cues today are, are super fluid and change. Like just, like, like the, the, you know, this, the, the, the modern hairstyle of like, you know, putting your hair back to the side um, or whatever, was something that actually happened in the 1940s and even earlier, okay? So it's, it's, a, it's a fad that has actually come in 70 years, 80 years later. And so that shouldn't surprise us that our cultural cues are completely different from the cultural cues of the first century. And so what we need to recognize is that social and cultural cues that were valid during the first century aren't valid today and don't have to be in 21st century America. In other words, how we dress and wear our hair today or how we even dress is culturally conditioned. And it might even look different 10 years from now, maybe even five years from now. Like if, if, if Seth, you know, showed up with bangs and long hair, like I wouldn't think anything of it except for the fact that like maybe like something dramatic happened in his life. I don't know. And in the same way, if, if a woman doesn't have long hair, it doesn't mean that she's sexually promiscuous today um, or wants to usurp the, the preeminence of, men, of other guys. She could have just, you know, she could have just had her, you know, head shaved and be all edgy and cool, but it wouldn't mean that she was in sin. But at the same time, the Apostle Paul his point is that to dress and act in a way that distracts people from the worship of God while also blurring the lines of distinction between men and women dishonors God and dis dishonors one another. Okay, that's, that's, the, that's, the Paul, that's what Paul's point is. His point is that to dress and act in a way that distracts people from the worship of God while also blurring the lines of distinction between men and women dishonors God and dishonors one another. And that will look differently. I'm not going to actually say like, what those things actually look like to blur the distinction because that can look super different for different people. One thing to point out before we move on to our next point is that what was most likely happening in the Corinthian church was that men who held positions of prominence and authority in the church misused their authority and preeminence by actually not allowing women to cover their heads. Okay, so it's, it's, this, is, and this, is, uh, this is conjectural because we have no idea if this was what was actually happening. But 
it's easy to read this passage and think that this passage is about Paul correcting women. But one commentator writes that the first concern of this passage is actually about men, not women. If women covering their heads, according to the culture, was deemed to be a, a sign of honor, modesty, status, protection, then why would, and we have to ask the question, why would women willingly choose to uncover their heads? Does it make sense? Like if you, if you were given a particular uh, idea of what it meant to be modest, pure, um, um, and, and um, oh my gosh, I'm losing my thought. Okay, I'm just gonna stick to my notes. Okay, so the, the point is, if you were given a particular status here, why would you choose to not follow that particular uh, cultural norm of what was honorable? Why would any dignified woman choose to subject themselves to shame and humiliation? Now, one possible reason was because women in the church were actually encouraged to let their hair, their heads be uncovered by, by men. Okay, so in other words, men were actually prohibiting women from covering their heads. And what we have to remember, you have to ask, you know, why, why would that be? What we have to remember is that Greco-Roman culture, again, was a patriarchal society. Okay, if the reason why the Apostle Paul was writing to the Corinthian church was, be, uh, uh, was because it began to resemble the surrounding culture, then it's certainly possible that men were the ones who regulated head covering according to their own interests. Does it make sense? You guys follow along? Because head covering symbolized honor, dignity, respect, it was possible that some men in the church wanted to keep distinction between certain classes of women. Okay, Head covering was a symbol, in other words, that limited men's control of certain women. And you can see why men would want to regulate that. They don't want to lose their control over, what, over, what, uh, over, the, over the social status and social class of different women. And so when the Apostle Paul encourages the women to cover their heads, he was actually supporting equalized relationships in the community. Okay? In other words, he was securing respect, honor, and sexual purity for women in the church who were denied this status in the culture. And th this was Paul ahead, way ahead of his time. Where, where the culture denied this, the, the status of dignity and honor and respect for women, Paul, as a Christian, was actually affirming their dignity, their honor, and their respect through encouraging them to wear head coverings. Does it make sense? Does it follow along? And so the Apostle Paul's encouragement for men to keep their heads uncovered and for women to keep their heads covered was a, deeply, was a deep call for the Corinthians to honor one another in a culture where men dishonored women and women dishonored men, okay? Second point, second point. How are we doing on time, 8.57? Okay, I think that's standard. All right, second point. Reflecting the Messiah means that we depend on one another, okay? We depend on one another. Take a look at verses seven to nine. For a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for God, but woman for man. Okay, so lots of crazy stuff here in just these three verses. And I'm pretty sure that if you told your friends that woman was created for man, it would pro probably not go well for you. So is the Apostle Paul saying what we think he means? Now to help us understand the command of verses four to six, the Apostle Paul is actually going back and alluding to the story of creation back in Genesis in verses seven to nine, okay? Paul is interpreting Genesis and applying it to their cultural moment. And so to understand these verses, we actually need to go back to Genesis chapter uh, one, to Genesis chapters one to two, okay? So we don't, have to take a, um, we don't have a ton of time to look at these, all these verses, but I want you guys to just turn to Genesis chapter one uh, very quickly, Genesis chapter one. Very simple, it's the first book of the Bible. 
Um, Genesis chapter 1. Just turn there, put your finger there. Now, in Genesis chapter 1, uh, there is actually, in the creation of the world, a binary structure, okay? Sunday school question here, how many days did it take for God to create the world? Okay, thank you. I'm so glad that none of you guys said seven. Maybe some of you guys were tempted to. Six days. Thank you very much. Six days. God creates the world in six days, okay? And the idea of this binary structure is that the first three days of creation correspond in parallel with the last three days of creation. Okay, so I've actually drawn it, drawn it out for, or just written it out for us. Okay, so, so you see this here? There's a binary structure, days one through three, days four through six. Does this make sense? You guys see this? Okay. And what you see actually in this binary structure of the creation of the world is that if you notice in verses three to four, it says that God forms the light. And it's that, that's the first day. And then if you drop down to verses 14 and 19, God fills the heavens with the sun, moon, and stars. That's the fourth day. And then if you continue to the second day, so we jump back to the second day, okay? Um, God creates and forms the sky and separates it from water. And then on the fifth day, after God formed the sky and separated the waters, God fills the sky and the waters with things that fly and things that swim. Uh, we don't know what those things are. I'm inclined to believe that they're dinosaurs and you know stuff like that. And then finally, on the third day, God forms the earth, third day, forms the earth and the seas and causes trees and fruit to grow, okay? And then on the last day, the sixth day, that parallels, okay? The sixth day of creation, God fills the earth with living creatures. You guys see that happening? You guys see that in the first 20-something verses of Genesis chapter 1? I'm pretty sure you guys never thought about that before. So do you, do you see how the, there are parallels of God forming in the first three days and God filling in the last three days? Does it make sense? You guys see that happening? Where the first day parallels with the fourth, the second day parallels with the fifth, and the third day parallels with the sixth. You guys following? Yeah, makes sense? Okay. And a question that you guys may be asking is, what does this have to do with men and women? Well, the binary structure of creation here is meant to mirror the binary creation of man and, bless you, of man and woman. The binary structure of creation is meant to mirror the binary creation of man and woman. Okay? When God creates man first, there we go, preeminence, priority, he gives Adam the task of naming and ordering the world. Okay, we see that when God calls him to be fruitful and to multiply. God blesses Adam with a blessing of fruitfulness and mastery over the world. But the problem that we all know is that Adam can't. Adam can't. Adam cannot continue God, his God-given mandate and responsibility. Adam can form the world by naming and ordering it, but he can't on his own fill the world. There's something that Adam lacks, and because of this lack, his task is actually incomplete. Okay, so he actually cannot complete what God has asked him to do. And the point of the creation of Eve is that she fulfills what was lacking in Adam by himself. Does it make sense? You guys follow along? As God creates both man and woman in his own image, what we see in the creation of man and woman are two complementary truths. That men and women are made in the image of God. They are God's idols on earth, and they are to reflect his image by reflecting his different roles of forming and filling the world. Does it make sense? And so what we can actually draw here is that in the first set of creation, this is what man is supposed to do. He's supposed to form the world. And in the second, the last set of days of creation, woman is supposed to fill it. Does, it make, does this make sense? Women are to fill, uh, fill 
what man was unable to do. Just as God forms and fills creation, God now calls man and woman to respectively form and fill the world. And what we see in God's assignments to both man and woman is that both their assignments are equally valuable and necessary for the flourishing of the world. Just imagine if woman did not do what what she needed to do. Adam would not actually be able to complete his task. In the same way, if woman did not do what she needed to do, Adam would fail in his task as well, and the blame would fall on him. And this will actually be a foreshadowing of what the Apostle Paul will talk about in chapter 12, where he says that all parts of the body are necessary for its proper functioning and flourishing. The eye of the body can't say that it doesn't need the hand of the body and vice versa. In the same way, men and women are to work harmoniously where the completion of their respective tasks are dependent on one another. What does this tell us? It tells us that men and women are actually dependent on one another. That's ingrained in the fabric of creation. This is the reason why the apostle says that woman was created for man. His point isn't that women are just some kind of eye candy for him. His point is that the human project, humanity itself, exists in community and centers around this binary yet equal creation of male and female. Humanity can't complete their God-given vocation without man and the help of the woman. And by help, here's what the Apostle Paul doesn't mean here. Okay? By help, the Apostle Paul doesn't mean that, men are, that women are to help men look good. As if, again, like I mentioned before, that there's some piece of eye candy. That is a, a chauvinistic kind of help that our culture has rightly shunned. But by help, Paul intends that women help men in the same way that God helps mankind. All throughout the book of Psalms, God is referred to as our helper. This is the reason why the Apostle Paul says that woman is the glory of man. Here's what he means. It's that woman is what makes and allows man to reflect the glory of God. And so you can actually say that women are actually a greater glory that allow men to be glorious. That apart from woman, men would actually be less glorious. Does it make sense? That is how dependent men are upon women. And vice versa. In other words, this is what makes women the greater glory because they fulfill what men lack in themselves. In fact, men and women are meant to partner together in their distinctive roles to participate and join into something that is far greater, far grander, far more cosmic than themselves. And this is why Paul says in verses 10 to 12, he says, that is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is also is now born of woman, and all things are from God. And so Paul encourages women to reflect their God-given roles and identities by um, uh, by wearing head coverings. And so when the Apostle Paul says that women ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels, what does that mean? Um, I think it's actually a reference to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, where the Apostle Paul says that the church are to judge the world. In fact, they're to judge angels. In, in chapter 6, verse 23, that the church has been given this glorious call, men and women, to judge angels. And if the church is able to have the authority to judge the world and angels, then women should have the authority to cover their own heads, independently of of how men discourage them from doing so. Which is why the Apostle Paul says in verses 13 to 16, he says, judge for yourselves then. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? 
Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no practice, no such practice, nor do the churches of God. So what is the TLDR of this passage? It's that as the church gathers, they're to retain divinely ordained gender roles through cultural signs and symbols like head coverings. Okay. Now, having said all this, what are we to make all of this? I know you guys are desperately getting to this point, and I thank you guys for, for sticking with me. Uh, I, I, you guys are, I, I applaud you for your valor. Um, if it's true that all scripture is, is breathed out by God and it is profitable, profitable, then somehow this passage has to be profitable for us. So how? And what makes, just a bit before we get there, it, what makes scripture profitable is that it actually transcends culture. Scripture transcends culture. Even though all of scripture is culture sensitive, it transcends it. I mean, what constitutes long hair? Like three inches, three feet, uh, three meters? What, what are the head cut? What, what, uh, what are head coverings? Uh, does that mean hoods or, or hats today? And so even though culture changes and social cues become invalid and valid over time, geography, time zones, and the, um, all those things change, the theology of scripture does not change. This means that scripture can speak into any culture and still challenge it, even though the culture changes from era to era. So what are we to make of the passage we all just got hit by? Um, I want to give, I want to just pull out four theological implications. I had five, but I'm going to spare you guys. I'm going to just give you four, okay? Um, you guys thought I wasn't going to be practical? Here it is. Uh, first is that God cares about how we worship, not just what we worship. Okay, God cares about how we worship, not just what we worship. What we see in this passage is from our modern ears is a pretty trivial issue of wearing or not wearing head covering. It doesn't really sound like a big deal, but the Apostle Paul makes it a big deal. Well, I think we know why. It's because the, the presence of head coverings for men and the lack of head coverings for women distracted each other from the worship of God. That was the whole point of this passage. And now if I were to ask you, what is the whole point of us gathering together like something for, for, for something like this here? What would you say? I think many of you might say that it's to see your friends. Uh, it's to get, you know, if, if you were to come to church on a Sunday, you might think it's to get breakfast in the morning rather than just getting breakfast on your own. Uh, it's to hear someone talk about the Bible. If you were to tell non-Christians what you do on a Sunday and why you go to church, what would you say? When the church gathers together, the unique presence of God is manifested among us. And I, I would hope that the reason why you come to church on a Sunday is to meet with God as much as it's important and helpful and, and fun to see your friends. The ultimate purpose for why we gather together is to be and worship the living, be with and worship the living God. Paul sees the church gathering as more than just a fellowship building with one another, but as fellowship with the living God. And if that is the case, if that's the reason why we gather together like this here on a Friday and a Sunday, then the Apostle Paul wants us to see how what we do on a Sunday actually does matter. When we sit together in the pews in these, in these old chairs, are we distracting other people from the worship of God? That's a real question that we have to ask ourselves. So I'm not even talking about cultural cues here, because again, that will change. And I'm pretty sure, I mean, most of us are not distracting each other with how we wear and what we wear. But I'm pretty sure that we can distract each other in all, a ton of different ways without, without these cultural cues. When we sit together in the pews or in these chairs, are we distracting each other from the worship of God? Church is about us because we are the church. But let's not forget that when we gather as the church, we gather for God. 
The reason why the Apostle Paul was so concerned about something so trivial as head coverings is because he wanted no one to be a source of distraction, and he wanted no one to be distracted from the worship of God. Okay, if, if, if clothing and how someone dresses isn't a source of distraction, could there be other sources of distractions? I can probably think of 10. Um, like a month ago, uh, during musical worship on a Friday night, I, I saw a junior higher and, and high schooler just tapping each other while everyone else was singing. And I'm like, guys, come on. Um, that's like the, the story of my life as a youth pastor. Um, how, how about our phones? Okay? How about the people sitting next to us? Are we helping one another worship God? Or are we distracting one another from worshiping him? And this is important because if we can still be distracted from the presence of God, where the real locus of his presence is here on a Sunday, then I can only imagine how much more distracted we'll be during the rest of the week when we're not with the church. If the purpose of our Sunday gatherings together are meant to equip us and, and fill us with the presence of God so that we enter our weeks renewed and refreshed to serve God and others, what happens to our school weeks when we have been distracted from his presence on a Sunday? Our form formation of Christian character happens here. And the testing of that character happens throughout the week. How we worship God during the week is shaped by how we worship God on Sundays and Fridays. Part of honoring and depending on one another is that we actually help each other to worship God better than we are apart. That's what Paul is encouraging us to do here. Second application, implication, is that God transforms our understanding of men's and women's roles. And I know I'm running out of time. It's because it's 9.13 already. Uh, but Paul's remarks on gender challenges both patriarchy and feminism. This passage challenges patriarchy by saying that men and women are both created in the image of God. And that men need women to fulfill their collective tasks and callings. Not just in marriage, but in the church and in life. Just as women need men to fulfill their collective tasks and callings. Not just in marriage, but in the church and in life. The fact that men are preeminent doesn't change the fact that they are to use their preeminence to serve rather than to be served. And so a question that all of us, not just men, need to be thinking and asking is, especially if you occupy seats of power and authority and leadership, is how do we see leadership? What do we think of leadership? Do we see leadership in school, in our homes, in sports, in clubs, in worship teams as a way to benefit ourselves? Do we see it as a way to get ahead at the expense of others? Do we see it as a, way, as a way to get people to like us? To get clout? Do we see it as a way to get people to do what we want them to do? Or do we see it as a way to maximize the interests of other people? Do we see leadership and authority preeminence like this? Do we see leadership the way Jesus sees it? Where the first shall be last and the last shall be first. Where those in positions of authority power and priority give their lives, their time, their own pursuits, their own desires to serve the interests and promote the flourishing of others. That is what those in leadership and power and authority in preeminence and priority are meant to do. This passage also challenges modern feminism by saying that as much as men and women are equal before God and others, it says that men and women need each other. Men are not independent from women, but women are also not independent from men. And the Apostle Paul isn't even talking about marriage, as I've mentioned before. As thick-headed and stupid us guys are, and as excellent and hardworking women are, women are not independent from their thick-headed counterparts. Just as men are to serve the other, women are to support the other in a symbiotic relationship. This, this passage also lifts up women in roles of leadership and influence. There is nothing in this passage that actually limits women from actually praying in public 
or prophesying in public, as I, as I mentioned before. With the exception of preaching and teaching to men, the Apostle Paul does not prohibit women from being deaconesses, from preaching and teaching to other women, scripture reading, praying publicly, serving communion, ushering, singing. So why don't our churches look more like, why doesn't our church look more like the church that the Apostle Paul is actually speaking into? There's nowhere in scripture that says that women are less gifted than men. In fact, they're often more gifted than men. And upon reflection of this passage, this passage is actually a withering, it's a withering critique of common conceptions of traditional gender roles that have often amounted to privileging men and patronizing women. The call in this passage is actually to, the call to look at Jesus, how he loves the church and gave himself for her, and then how he submits his entire life to the will of the Father. And the question is, as men and women, are we living like that? Are we living like that? Third, God lifts women up by bringing himself down. God lifts women up by bringing himself down. The way that the Apostle Paul lifts women up in this passage is completely countercultural to the Greco-Roman culture and our culture as well. Uh, in the book, The Rise of Christianity, the sociologist Rodney Stark remarks on how the early church developed a substantial surplus of females, including slaves, widows, women of low class and prestige, women that society just didn't want. While in the pagan world surrounding them, males greatly outnumbered the females. Why is that? It's because Jesus came for the poor. He came for the widowed, the poor in spirit, and the brokenhearted. He lifted the brokenhearted men and women up by lowering himself down. Because though he was God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. In the final sentence of his book, Rodney, Rodney Stark writes that what Christianity gave to its converts, both rich and poor, high and low, Jew and Gentile, slave and free, male and female, was nothing less than their humanity. Christianity gave to its converts nothing less than their humanity. In other words, when Jesus die, dies for us, what Jesus gives us in himself is a new way of being human. And finally, the fourth is that God will bring male and female to their ultimate destiny. God will bring male and female to their ultimate destiny. The fall of Adam and Eve in Genesis 3 instigated the first of many perpetual wars between men and women. This is where all gender wars begins in Genesis 3. And as male and female become more and more divided, the more humanity is separated from God's original and intended purpose for humanity. What is that? It's to be fruitful and to multiply. And they can't do that without one another. Humans were created to rule in unity and harmony, but, but, but they became divided in hostility and became embedded in systemic patterns of oppression. But as the second Adam, God in Jesus the Messiah would actually reverse the fall. He would tear down the dividing walls so that as the Apostle Paul writes in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, he says there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Through his death would emerge one new bride, comprised of Jew and Greek, slave and free, male and female. It's the reason why the church is called the bride of the Messiah. Because in Jesus, God was bringing male and female to their ultimate destiny, where the church would actually become the second Eve, with Jesus being the second Adam. 
as her head in the new Eden, bringing God's original and intended purpose to its completion. Where in the new heavens and the new earth is you have a, a new Adam and a new Eve dwelling together in the marriage supper of the Lamb. The new Adam being Jesus and the new Eve being the church. That is what gender ultimately points to. And so obviously I've not, I'm, I'm sure I've not answered maybe half of your questions you guys might have about this text. But I hope that this um, challenge your understand, challenges your understanding of what it means to be a Christian in the modern world and how scripture even challenges our traditional understandings of men and women roles. And so with that, I'm going to pray for us and we'll, we'll be dismissed. God, um, there's a fire hose of stuff. Um, and um, I recognize that there's probably some things that there's some people here probably didn't agree with and some things that, um, that other people really agreed with. Um, but God, I do pray that even in the midst of even these disagreements, that there would be unity that would be knit uh, among uh, the, the disagreeing or dividing opinions or um, um, opinions. And so, God, we do ask for your help, for wisdom, um, that as we seek to understand what you call us to do as human beings, as men and women, uh, that you would um, empower us and help us to see Scripture aright, to see what it says um, and take it on its own terms and not uh, twist it to mean what we want it to mean or how we've always traditionally or historically have understood it to mean. And so, God, we pray that you would uh, grant us much humility and even patience as we interact with one another, even tonight. We thank you and we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right.